Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Heather, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Bob. Real pleasure to have you here. I've been listening to Craft and Cluster for a long time, and I would recommend that anyone who doesn't already subscribe does, because you go into a lot of detail and explain things really well. It's a great podcast. Thank you. Uh, so in 30 seconds or less, I'd like to start. Can you tell us who you are, what you do you do, and why are you qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? <laughs> yes. So um, my name is Heather Danitz. I am the founder and photographer of Craft and Cluster, which is a photography and social media marketing consulting uh, not really an agency because it's just me, but um, yeah, a consulting uh, person. Uh, and so what I do is I help wineries tell the true stories behind their brands using um, dynamic photos, visual elements, and um, social media marketing. Um, I focus largely on Instagram as that's where I have the most knowledge. Um, and, and also because I think it's one of the best platforms to share visual elements such as video and photography. So um, it is, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> cool. um, I've worked in the wine industry for over 10 years now. Uh, I started working in the wine industry in 2010 and I've worked in variously in tasting rooms, production, in vineyards. I have a degree, a pretty superfluous degree at this point um, in horticulture, which um, for viticulture and enology. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I got into the whole social media side is I was actually working in uh, working for a vineyard management company here in Santa Barbara County um, in California. And um, they asked me to start an Instagram account for them. And so I did. And it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. In fact, that I was like, well, I guess I'll just do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> cool. So as a good place to start, uh, how do you think the wine industry can attract new consumers and how can it keep them afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. So really, I mean, what we're looking into right now is the demographic of wine consumers is skewing younger and younger and younger, um, which is great. It's really great to see some of the younger generations like, um, you know, the millennials and Gen Z kind of getting into more into wine and things like that. But what we have to understand is that there's also now some pretty stiff competition between the wine industry and seltzer, <laughs> which is growing and becoming more popular um, amongst the youngins um, like myself. And, um, and so really we, you know, you kind of want to think about why uh, millennials and Gen Z, why they are consuming what they're consuming. Um, and part of it, like with, with, in regards to the seltzers, what, why they're consuming a lot more seltzers and like canned cocktails and things like that is because they're easy to drink. Um, they don't have to think about them too hard. And I think that the, the downfall of a lot of wine, the wine industry in general has been that it's pretty inaccessible. Um, or it has historically been inaccessible and only available to the quote elite, um, which is really unfortunate. And, um, and so really if what the wine industry in this respect wants to kind of gain more um, wine drinkers, young wine drinkers, and then retain them, they need to make the wine industry a little bit more accessible to them. Um, and that doesn't mean like discounting uh, the uh, 
you know, the, oh gosh, I'm trying to like form my words here, but it doesn't mean like not, not also elevating the experience and really talking about what's in the bottle and, and, you know, what, like the one, the 1% of, um, wine drinkers enjoy, which is that really deep, gritty, nerdy stuff. Um, so it doesn't mean like cutting that out, but it's also sort of inviting, um, the younger wine drinkers who are honestly, they're in there just to drink something that tastes good, right. Inviting them to kind of move into a deeper story with wine. Uh, and so what that means is, is really, moving them through this almost like reverse funnel, this, what I like to call the, the winos hierarchy of needs, which is, um, you know, if you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs at all, it goes, you know, at the very bottom of the pyramid is like the very basic elements of survival, which is like food, water, oxygen, and warmth. Um, and then the next level up would be like safety. So shelter and things like that. And then it moves up and up and up until you reach spiritual enlightenment. Um, but with like what I, the winos hierarchy of needs, the way that I describe it is, you know, that very bottom um, level is people who are just getting into wine. So they all that they just they know they want wine and that's it. I want wine is the statement of this bottom level. The next level up is like is the safety a- aspect of it. So I want wine that I like. I want wine that I know I'm going to like. I want good wine. And so, um, you know, so that's, that's usually where a lot of people are when they're kind of discovering wine for the first time is like, they quickly go from, I want wine to, I want good wine. And I want to know that I'm getting good wine. The next level up from that is the community aspect. So, um, I want to enjoy wine with my friends and family or people that I love. Um, and then the next level up from that is I want to learn more about wine. I want knowledge. And then the final step, of course, is the wino aspect, which is like your status. That's like, I want to have the status of wino. I want to have the status of um, being somebody who knows things about wine. I want to be the person who recommends, you know, who like knows all the gritty details. And when I'm at a dinner party um, and somebody is asking me about this wine or I'm bringing this new wine that nobody's ever had before, um, I'm going to be able to explain that to them and why that wine's so cool. So, um, so really you want to, you know, a lot of the wine industry really needs to focus on moving people up that pyramid, um, and moving them and, and making it not necessarily easy, but making it a little easier and being more acceptable or, um, you know, the other thing that younger, uh, younger consumers are wanting out of any business, this isn't just, uh, winery or, you know, the wine industry or the beer industry or, or anything like that. What the younger generation is looking for these days is um, a business that has values that align with their own. And um, more and more that is including ethical business decisions, um, sustainable, environmentally sustainable business decisions, um, and and really just, you know, diversity and inclusion. So they want to make sure that they're supporting a company that also supports the things that make them happy, you know, um, more and more people are voting with their dollars. And so I think if a lot of, if the wine industry really wants to one, attract new consumers, but also retain those consumers, they really need to um, look internally and start presenting themselves as, as um, an industry that is diverse, that is inclusive, that is also um, 
you know, farming responsibly historically, you know, vineyards have been one of the most, um, and a, a very environmentally taxing crop, um, wine, you know, um, wine grapes. And so finding ways to, you know, farm race more responsibly and then highlight that and show what you're doing to be more environmentally friendly. So those are just a couple of the things that I would say to look into. So is there anyone you've seen do this very well? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a winery here called Tablas Creek. Um, they're in Paso Robles, Northern Cal or it's like central coast California, but North of me <laughs> where I'm living. Um, so Tablas Creek winery, I think does a phenomenal job at this. They are, um, a very environmentally responsible company. Uh, they've always have been, they are one of the first wineries and vineyards to become certified biodynamic. Uh, they're one of the largest vineyards to be certified biodynamic. They're a couple hundred acres, I think, at this point. Um, and and they're very uh, they're growing what they need to grow in that region to be responsible. Uh, they also have a really wonderful company culture. So you can tell that people really enjoy being there and really enjoy working there. And um, they retain their, their employees much longer, I think, on average than most wineries do, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, they have, they've really positioned themselves as being um, very, very sustainable and, and all that. I think now they're, I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that they are regenerative um, agriculture organic certified, uh, which is kind of the newest uh, level. So they they started out as being SIP certified, which is sustainability in practice. So sustainably certified. And then they went to, of course, CCOF organic, which is our California um, organic certification board. Um, for organic agriculture. And then they went to, of course, biodynamic. You have to be certified organic before you can be certified biodynamic. And then from there, they went on to um, become regenerative certified. So um, they're really walking the talk and and doing a good job at it. So um, I, I think Talos Creek is doing a great job of this. I think that they're also doing a really great job of making wine um, accessible while also getting into like the nitty gritty of wine. So they're doing it in a way that's not, uh, discounting how wonderful and, and great wine is. They're doing it in a way that, but they're doing it in a way that elevates everybody. So that is invites new consumers into this, uh, this wonderful wor world of wine, you know, they're doing a really good job at that. So yeah, I think that would be probably my favorite example. I like um, Jason. I follow on on Twitter. He's great for responding mm -hmm. to stuff, uh, and it, it, he's done exactly yeah. as you say. Like he's told, uh, he's replied to me about rootstocks and soil types and other boring stuff that no one would ever be interested in in their right mind. But, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, yes, yeah. Um, exactly. So this leads on quite nightly, and it's also this is a question made for you uh, that was from an exam paper a few years ago. Um, in what ways have social media changed the marketing of wine brands over the past ten years, and how do you see it changing over the next ten? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a, this is a really great question. And one that, um, I was actually looking into this just out of curiosity. Um, so Instagram was founded 11 years ago. So 2010, October of 2010, which is actually the, the same month and same week. In fact, that I started working in the wine industry. So I just thought that was really um, fun and interesting for me, not for anyone else, but, 
so I, I honestly think that the wine industry has sort of almost grown up with Instagram. Uh, and I say that because you, you can really see how social media marketing, particularly on Instagram and of course on Facebook and Twitter, um, has, has evolved with the, um, addition of, of channels and elements to the Instagram platform. So with wine brands, uh, you know, let, I mean, let me just take you back to kind of almost the history of, of Instagram. Um, Instagram was actually originally founded. It was originally called bourbon, which was, um, it was, I forget the, the original founder's name. Um, but he was really interested in whiskeys and bourbons. And so he created an app in like 2009 or something that was surrounded. The idea of it was so people could share photos and check in at places and communicate with their friends. Um, and it was, it was a rel- relatively complicated app to use, but it was founded because he, this guy really likes bourbon and he liked talking about it and sharing about it. Um, and so eventually this app evolved and changed. They found that the app itself was really um, complicated, but they found that people really enjoyed sharing photos. That was the, the thing that people enjoyed the most. They didn't really use the check-in features. They didn't really use anything else from the app. They just used the photos the liking of the photos and the commenting on the photos. And so, um, and so they were like, huh, how can we leverage this and turn this in, like take these things that people love and just make that a very simple app, which is how Instagram was founded. So, um, you know, it started out as just consumers being on Instagram, people just enjoying it. But then eventually some businesses saw how popular this app was and they were like, we need to capitalize on this. And so they hopped on Instagram um, and, and also on Facebook and Twitter and started uh, communicating with this, these consumers. They started showing off their products and really um, and leaning into this platform, these platforms that were reaching so many more people. All of a sudden, these these brands who maybe only, you know, these wine brands particularly, who maybe only got seen by anyone who read, you know, wine enthusiast or whatever the publication is of the day, they're now being seen by people all over the world and all over the United States, you know, and and they're reaching a a broader audience. So they have this huge opportunity to reach more people. And as the Instagram app um, and the Facebook app and Twitter apps sort of evolved and added more features and more things like that, wineries and and businesses in general started to see how they could leverage each of these things. So um I mean in the in the big way wine industry has really benefited and boomed because of social media. It's just a new way of communicating with consumers. And then I think in the last the last year, I mean with the pandemic and everything and being shut down and and um, you know quarantine and everything, wineries had to think of a way they could no longer not use social media. Um, you know, I think when I first got into this industry, when I first started started Craft and Cluster in 2019, it was it was a very difficult sell for me. Um, because wine, winemakers, winery owners, they're very practical th- people. They, if they don't see the ROI, the benefit in it, then they don't want to invest their time or energy into it. Right. 
And so, or their money into it, especially their money. So uh, the pandemic in many ways, and I hate saying this because it, it feels like very dubious, but the pandemic in many ways actually helped me sell my services better because all of a sudden these wineries who are used to these face-to-face interactions or used to um, these once a month publications selling their wine, they all of a sudden have to think outside the box and reach their consumers in a different way. And, um, and so they're like, oh, well, the best way to do that is social media, particularly with uh, the changes and new features to all these social media apps, the advent of live, live streaming. You can go live um, on Instagram and you can save the video so that that video lives on forever. And so you can have all these wonderful um, conversations with your directly with your consumers if they're tuning in live and you can um, and really reach them in, in a in a way, in a broader way than you were before, because before wineries were saying, seeing these one-on-one interactions with maybe, maybe a couple hundred people a weekend, um, depending on how large the winery was usually up maybe first, the smaller wineries, maybe 50 to hundred people in a, a weekend at most. And all of a sudden there, they have this opportunity to get in front of thousands, literally thousands of people, um, in a single day, in a single moment, they can get in touch, in touch with so many other people. So, um, I, I don't know if I'm going off on a tangent here, but like with, I think with the ways that social media has changed, has actually shaped the way that, um, wineries and wine brands can market. How do you, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So because my, my day job before this one was selling um, ad space in in an exhibition space for a magazine and 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 show and um yeah getting trying to explain what the different social media channels were and also what retargeting is and a load of other stuff everyone just wanted to ban it because it's the one thing they'd heard of yeah. but uh, so how do you <laughs> how do you explain to an eighty year old um, wine brand <laughs> that um, what Instagram is or what TikTok is like, how do you sell that in and how do you convince it and also yeah. and how do you see you know um, the, the next few years coming with with new stuff because I don't get I'm even too old for Clubhouse I think I don't fully get it yet I only, since, I only signed up like a month ago um, so yeah how do, how do you um, how do you break that conversation oh that's a great question uh, I would say and this is the conversation that I have with with everybody and what I was having with them before the pandemic was uh, of course it like Instagram is my favorite app. Um, Instagram is first and foremost, a storytelling app. And we have a really rich history of storytelling in the wine industry. So you have, by using these apps, by telling your story and then most importantly, inviting your audience into that story, you have this opportunity to, to build a deeper connection with your audience to move them up that pyramid, that wino's hierarchy of needs, um, to move them from just, I want wine, I want good wine, to I want to tell everyone everything I know about wine. You want to give them those, almost those words that, you know, you want them to use to describe you and your brand. So it is, it is a way instead of reaching, you know, for example, like a lot of those, the, the older wine, uh, winery owners, what they understand is the print advertising, right? So they understand the uh, the uh, you know wine spectator. They they understand the scores and things like that. Um, and so what I do say is like, well, instead of 
paying for what a you know a a ten thousand or seven seven thousand dollar ad that of a quarter of a page in a magazine that comes out once a month that only a handful of people are going to see right instead of that advertising space you have this free app it's a free app you anyone can use it you don't have to pay to be on it um you have this free app where you can have full control over the imagery and or the visuals um, and the copy, the caption that goes you know, goes in there. And you can then, once you've reached them, once these people have interacted with your post, you can actually build a deeper connection with them. So, um, and also, I mean, the other side of it too is a lot of the, these, um, you know, the older winemakers and older winery owners, the other thing that they understand about advertising is, um, you know, uh, uh, postcards and, um, you know, email lists to some extent, but, but also phone calls, the, you know, the re like the cold call calling type of advertising, not necessarily cold calling, but, you know, reaching out to people via the phone, which is a really successful way of selling. Um, and the reason it's so successful is because people can hear your voice, right? That's why, Clubhouse has become so popular recently is because there's no more intimate way of getting to know someone than hearing their voice and seeing, or even seeing them talk. Right. So, um, and having a conversation. And so, um, that's, that's one of the reasons that phone call sales are so successful and have historically been very successful. So Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and Clubhouse offers you this opportunity to build a really, really deep connection with the people who are consuming your content um, and which then helps them trust you more. It helps them, it moves, as I said, it moves them up that, that um, pyramid to, to the top where they're going to be so warm that they're going to be ready to like hurl their credit cards at you and buy whatever wine that you want to sell them, right? So um, I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly, but like, it's really, it's a really beautiful opportunity to build a community around your brand rather than just selling a specific item. You're really building a, a larger fan base um, of people who really care about your brand and who really want to know what else, what they can do to support your brand. Um, because again, with those, the single ad spaces in, um, in magazines and publications, those, you know, it's, it's, it's this big, it's tiny <laughs> in a, and maybe even if you did like a full page ad for $10,000 or whatever, however much they're charging these days, uh, you can't ch ever change that copy. And more importantly, when somebody reads that ad space or reads the article that you've been featured in or whatever, they don't really have a way of communicating with you except to maybe like if they're feeling really um, ambitious, sending you an email being like, oh, I saw this and I really liked it and I wanted to purchase from you. You know, that doesn't happen very often. What does happen on Instagram or on social media is people will see a post and it'll resonate with them maybe. And, um, or maybe they'll, they'll visit you or be, be drinking your wine and they'll take a picture and post it on their own, their own social media platforms and tag you in it. And then all of a sudden you have this dialogue already opened up between you. It's as simple as that. Somebody seeing a post that they, um, you made 
commenting on it. And then all of a sudden you have this like deep connection with this individual who, you know, if they had, if that same person had read an article, it would have been so many more steps to tell them that they tell you that they liked it or, you know, for them to take action on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in, in terms of metrics then, like when, if you're, if you're doing an Instagram account for a client, how do you, in terms of return on investment, how do they see sales generated? What do you report back with? Or if, if anyone asks you that, do you think they're looking at it the wrong way? No. Um, yeah. And this is the, this is the tricky part, right? Because um, metrics like uh, analytics on Instagram, it's really, it's actually pretty hard to track organic ROI from social media. Um, so it's really hard to, to quantify that because yes, um, you know, you can, you can look at things, you know, what we call vanity metrics, like likes, comments, saves, and shares. Um, you can look at those and say, Hey, yeah, I got, you know, I got 200 engagements on this one post and that's, you know, a hundred more than the last post. You can see that one of these posts, you know, resonated more frequently with, with your audience or more, more powerfully with your audience, but how it's very hard to track how many of those actually converted into a sales and into a sale or into, um, you know, an email list subscriber or whatever, whatever your purpose was behind that post. It is hard to track that. Um, which is, which has been the hardest sell for me because again, winemakers and, and winery owners are very practical people. They're like, well, what, what is, what's the ROI? How do I, how do I know that this is working? Um, and just talking, you know, going back to Jason Haas of Tablas Creek, he knows his social media is working by how warm his, he's making his audience, right. By their interactions, by the numbers of number of DMS and, um, and comments that they're getting and the quality of those DMS and comments, right. Because often those, those interpersonal, um, uh, communications between, you know, in, in the DMS in your private messages, um, in, and in your comments, those are the things that actually translate, uh, most often to sales. And, and you can often track those individual people. Um, for example, with one of my clients, I have a practice of going into, um, anyone who has tagged them in an, in a post, I go in and I comment on that post and I say, Hey, thanks so much for visiting us or whatever the context of their post is. Um, I'll make a joke. And if maybe if there's somebody who um, one of their friends has also commented on the post being like, Oh, where is this? I'll respond to those comments and say, Hey, you know, we're X winery. This is where we're located and you can come visit us anytime. And I will, I also have, <laughs> I have access to this, this particular client's um, uh, reservation system. And so I can see when those people have taken action and actually come and like scheduled a reservation with us. And so I have a very unique way of seeing how my efforts on this platform are translating into actual quantifiable sales. Um, but not everybody has that, that opportunity, or if they do, they, they, they're not looking into it. So I would say one of my best one of the best ways to track metrics 
um, is first to understand your, your purpose, the purpose behind the posts that you're making, right? So with all of my clients, we have um, a few different purposes. One purpose is to engage. So we, the content that we create is purely to just serve the audience, to give them value, to see what they like, what they don't like. Um, and so, you know, we'll make posts that'll say something like, Hey, you know, um, this is what we're up to in the winery. Um, what do you want to learn from, what do you want to learn about next? Or what do you like the most about this aspect of what we just showed you? Um, and then we will read those comments and interact with them. And so pure, those, those posts purely exist to, uh, to just be interacted with, just to be engaged with. And so I'll try those, the success of those metrics would be things like, comments, likes, comments, saves, and shares. And so we know if we didn't get a lot of those, if we didn't get a lot of engagements, we know that maybe that wasn't um, a post that would resonate or that resonates. So we'll tweak it slightly and try and make it better the next time. Our other purpose is, of course, online sales. And so um, we will, you know, we track that that success by um, if you have Google Analytics set up um, at all, you can go through and look at where your traffic is coming from. And so we have goals every single month, like, okay, well, we want to make sure that we're getting this many, um, you know, at least this many people from social media onto our website. And sometimes those result in sales and sometimes they don't, but we want to make sure the more people we can get from social media to the website, the better. And so we're always trying to reach those goals, right? Um, and so we track that one via Google Analytics by seeing how many people actually made it to the website, but also by looking at the link clicks, which is an um, is an insight and analytic that you can actually track within Instagram and also Facebook. Um, and I think also through Twitter, I've, I've seen those as well. Um, and then one of our other purposes for the most part for brick and mortar wineries is by tracking um, how many people are actually visiting us. Um, and so one of the best ways we track that is by how many times we've been tagged in a post from somebody who's or, or in stories or things like that um, from people who are actually visiting us. And, and what I like to do is anytime somebody is tagging us in a post or something, I like to go try and almost reverse engineer that and be like, well, what was their first um, contact with us? Did they hear about us online? Did they hear about us through, um, you know, through Instagram or Facebook or wherever? Or did they just come with a friend who happened to know us and then they fell in love with us and tagged us and whatever and joined the wine club or whatever? Um, and so that, again, these are all kind of loose ways to track. There's really no hard and fast um, thing that you can see that's like this post directly re um, resulted in, you know, this X many people signing up, you know, for the wine club or X many people coming in for a tasting or X many people purchasing this particular wine. Um, unless, of course, you have... <laughs> This is a long explanation, but unless, of course, you have, um, say, a specific, unique, like, coupon code or link in the, our landing page that um, is specific to your social media platforms. Um, one of my clients has a 
they have a very specific link that they use for their email marketing. And then they have a very specific link that they use for uh, their social media marketing when they're selling, when they're, the intention is to sell a particular bottle. And so what we can do is they can actually see, okay, this person, when we go back into Google analytics, they can say, Hey, uh, this person landed on this page from social media. We saw that. And from this landing page, they purchase this, this, and this, because you can see the roadmap of how people have interacted with your website. Um, and so you can actually see, you can track how a single individual has gone from here to here and, and all that. So that is one of the only hard and fast ways to really quantify your success on, on social media. Uh, so there's a few things I want to ask you, but uh, one of them, well, one of them follows on from um, a guest I had on uh, last week, we haven't published yet. Um, he's very keen on influencers. What do you think of wine influence mm -hmm. in general? Do you think consumers and the trade should trust them? Because I'm still vaguely dubious about influencers. I think there's a lot of BS that goes with it. Um, but I, I remain to be convinced. And you know, some people have done quite well, but I think that also ignores the times that maybe it hasn't. What, where do you where do you think the Instagram influencers and social media influencers? Have, where do you think their part of the play is? Yeah. Um, so I, I am also, um, a little dubious about them. I think in certain scenarios and certain influencers, they can absolutely be an enormous help to getting more eyes on your content. I've seen, I've seen some influencers sell the crap out of wine, like just really do their job, right? Like do what they're, what they promise. Um, but more often than not, unfortunately, I've seen, some influencers really not pull their weight and really, really only do things for their vanity. Um, and it's very clear that they're only doing it because they want to be known for something, which, you know, to each their own, but when it's not helping my clients, I'm not okay with it. So, um, yes. So influencers, uh, yeah, here's, here's what I'll say is I think that wineries, if they're looking to work with influencers, which they should, I think that there is absolutely a time and a place for influencers, influencer marketing. They need to vet them really hard. They need to look at their history, the influencer's history, see if those um, influencers have actually converted their followers into buyers because that, that is a metric that, that you should be tracking and that you should be getting from those influencers. Um, and one of the ways you can do that, of course, like you'll, a, a really good influencer will have an, a media kit that will list out all of the brands that they've worked with and, or most of the brands that they worked with, the big brands that they've worked with. Um, and, and they'll list out, you know, what their metrics are. Right. But what I do when I am vetting a particular influencer for a client is I will look at the that influencer. One, I'll look at, do they have a an audience that aligns with our target audience? Um, for example, there was there was a um a, a woman who reached out to one of my clients who is she focuses mostly on sparkling wine. <clears throat> and one of my clients, they are a big red and Bordeaux, they don't make any sparkling wine at all. So I knew immediately that there would be some disconnect between that person's audience and my client's target audience. So we wouldn't really necessarily be able to reach the right people. 
Um, and so that was immediately, I was like, well, this is not going to be a good person, a good influencer for this brand. But I did recommend that they reach out because I thought that they had some really good content. I recommend that they reach out to one of my other clients who does have sparkling wine. So I was like, okay, we can, we can make this work. Um, the next thing that I look at is, um, you know, if they pass that initial test of does their audience align with my target audience, are they going to bring in new, new, um, audience members to us, um, is I will look at their content. And so I will look at what, what is it that they're posting? Does, do their posts seem to be well thought out? Do they seem to be, uh, not necessarily like carbon copies of what's on the wineries that they've been, the winery websites of the wineries that they've been working for, um, or working with. Um, and so, you know, if it seems like very intentional, very well thought out original content, you know, then, then I will say, okay, well, let's look at the brands that they've worked with. And so I'll look at the brands that they've worked with. Um, again, always with this in mind, like, are these also brands that, um, align with our, our own mission? So, um, you know, are they big, uh, are they, you know, smaller wine brands that, uh, are focusing on like kind of, or, uh, sustainable wine or whatever, or are they, um, bigger brands that, are more conventional in their farming practices. Okay. If the latter, then maybe we won't work with this influencer because there will also, again, be a disconnect here. But, um, if they are people who are, again, if the audience is still like aligned with ours, then, then we'll move forward. And what I'll do is I'll actually reach out to some of the brands that they've worked with and say, Hey, um, we're considering working with this person. We just want to know what your experience was with them. Um, and, and really listen to what they said, like, what was your, what was your impression going into this partnership? Um, can you, are are there any quantifiable things that you can tell us, you know, did you reach the goals? What were your goals going into this partnership? What, um, and did you reach those goals at the end of the partnership? Um, and, you know, and all those things. And so once we've passed all of those levels, then I'll say, okay, let's talk with this influencer and see, um, what they, what their intentions are with us. Like, what do they, what do they like about our brand? What drew them to want to work with us? And so really just, um, going through that entire process, it's the same process that you would go, go through to work with any vendor. Um, you really just want to make sure that they're going to align with you. Are there any um are there any influencers you've worked with who you particularly like or anyone you particularly following? Who do you, who do you rate? Yeah, um, yeah, uh, I I really w- like working with um, Courtney and Nathaniel Martin. They go by the Instagram handle Winery Reflections. Um, I've seen them do some. I've actually interviewed them on my own podcast. Um, I think that they are, they're really intentional with what they write. They're, they only post about wine. Like basically if, if a winery reach out, reaches out to them, they taste their wine. They don't like the wine. They won't post about them. So, you know, that every single, um, brand that makes it onto their blog and onto their Instagram account, you know, that they like them, that they, again, align with their values and that, um, you're going to get a really well thought out intentional, um, tasting notes and, and, um, written articles. So they'll write both 
tasting notes of the wine itself, but then they'll also go out and, and do a tasting experience and write an entire blog post about the history of the winery and they learn and they go out and they, and it's really, they ask the right questions. I think that they do a phenomenal job. Um, I really like working with them. Um, there's also another woman, uh, she goes by the handle wine by Renee. Um, incidentally, she's really wonderful, um, on, in, on clubhouse. I, that's how I'm actually, that's how I met her was via clubhouse. And, um, and I, and again, very intentional. She just is, yeah, just so, um, thoughtful in, in her caption writing and, and everything that she does. And she really cares about the success of the brands that she's working with, which is really important um, that she's not just doing it to like make money and all that stuff. She really cares about educating about wine and, and all that. Um, I've never worked with Julia Coney, but I have, I have really been wanting to work with Julia Coney. I think she's a wonderful woman. And I think she is also just very intentional and, and so, so nerdy about wine. It's just really, really fun to, to listen. I enjoy consuming her content, which I think is also an important aspect is like, you got to also not be bored by the content that you're consuming. And so if you're, if you're intending to work with an influencer and you are looking at their content and you find yourself yawning or like glazing over a little bit, then they might not be the best person to work with. But if you find um, a person who is really good at their, at their content and you're, you're really engaged with their content, then that's, that's a good person. So Julia Coney, um, and then Elaine Brown, she goes by Hawk Waka Waka on Instagram. She is also a really wonderful, wonderful, um, wine writer. She's an artist as well. Um, I, I haven't, again, haven't worked directly with her, but she has worked with a lot of brands, that I truly, truly love. Um, she's worked with Tablas Creek. She was on one of their uh, Instagram live videos that they did during quarantine. And uh, she works with Brooks Winery, which is up in Oregon. It's one of my favorite biodynamic wineries. Um, they, she's just so, um, she's just wonderful. She's a wonderful woman and really, really good at what she does. And I love learning from her. She's a very fascinating person. Uh, so yeah, well, actually, whilst we're on the subject of content, we might as well um, ask this one because I wanted to. Um, I really rate your podcast, and I really rate there's a few others that I listen to fairly religiously um, <laughs> because I think the content in them is excellent, and also the production's good, the sound quality's good. Um, but do you think <laughs> podcasts in general are things that people should get into from a branding point of view? And do you think they do a good job of informing consumers? As there's a lot of very bad podcasts. Um, and, uh, and uh, quite a few of them have died a death, I think, but, um, but then you see brands yeah. launching their own. I think it, sometimes I think that looks a little bit, uh, it looks a bit disingenuous. I think if you do it from a brand's <laughs> point of view, um, what do you think? Yeah. Um, my thought on podcasts in the wine industry are podcasts are great for those who are in the like upper tiers of the, the pyramid that we were talking about earlier. Um, I, I can't think of a single wine podcast where they're talking about things that the average consumer would give two shits about <laughs> pardon my language, but <laughs> I like, I, I, they, cause they haven't reached that level yet. They haven't reached that. Like, I want to learn more about wine. Right. Um, 
So I do think that podcasts can be valuable. Uh, again, because these this audio experience is one of the deepest ways to connect with somebody. So um, I personally enjoy wine and um, wine podcasts, uh, and I and it's because I I work in the wine industry, you know, adjacent to the wine industry now, but I have worked in the wine industry in the past. I'm educated in wine. And so, and so I can find a lot immense value in them. Um, but for the average consumer, I don't really think so. And I might maybe wrong. Um, but I just don't see the value in a, in going on a podcast. If your goal is to reach, uh, to reach the kind of those lower tiers of, um, of, of the wine consumer. But, but yeah, if you are looking to reach those upper tiers of, of, um, the wine consumer, those people who have a little bit more knowledge in wine, I think it's a fantastic way to, to reach those people. So yeah, I guess it, I guess my answer is it depends on your goals, right? Um, if you are, um, you know, if you're Franzia, you're maybe not, going to be going on podcasts because it's not really, you're not going to reach the, the target audience that you're after, after, right. You're not going to reach that audience, um, via a podcast. You'd be more, more easily reach those people on social media. Right. But, um, if you are, you know, the Gaia's of the world, the, you know, the tablas Creeks of the world where you're kind of trying to reach those like more, um, advanced consumers who are starting to really get into the nerdy get nitty gritty of, of wine, then yes, totally. I think podcasts are, are very, very valuable, uh, for brands starting their own podcasts. I'm a little skeptical of that as well. It does seem, uh, like, I feel like you're going to run out of content. (laughs) Um, and I, again, I think that you'd be much better served by doing like being on social media and doing, I, I talk about them so much and it's just because I think they're doing such a great job, but being more like Tablas <laughs> Creek and yeah. like, yeah, I mean, I know I hate, I should, I should have more, I should have more of these, um, these <laughs> examples, but like they, they do such a fantastic job. They're showing if you're really wanting to do sort of almost the podcast model where you, but you want it to be centered around your brand, then, then you should do Instagram live or Facebook live, wherever your audience is, um, you should do those, those, or like show up on, on IGTV and, and talk about what you would be talking about in a podcast, right? Like if you're like, okay, well, uh, we want to talk about, um, kind of what our like winemaking philosophy is or whatever. Um, then talk about that on, on social media and in, in a video go on, on YouTube. YouTube's a great place for that. If you really want, if you really want this to be centered around your brand, I just personally don't see the value in a brand doing a podcast that is focused entirely, like centered entirely around them. Um, but I don't know, it might work for somebody. What do you think the future of podcasting is? Um, cause I've, I'm, I'm quite prickly about, I think digital con- good quality digital content should be paid for I, I totally realize that i'm putting this out for free so i'm just like i'm uh, being a hypocrite I've, I've only got 70 listeners so it's not really that much of an issue but, um, but yeah in, in, uh, what do you think the future of podcasting is do you think it's going to do people will run out of steam with it or because it's essentially just still radio right yeah uh yeah um 
I mean, I think that podcasts will always be awesome and valuable. Uh, I mean, in terms of longevity, I mean, I myself, like I was releasing an episode once a week, uh, but just in the last few weeks, I've been so swamped, actually a few months, I've been so swamped with what I've been doing for work that I haven't been able to keep up with that. And so now I'm going to be releasing a podcast episode once a month until I can get back into the habit of, of creating more often. Um, mostly because it's just me. Like it's, it's not, I don't have like a team behind me, you know, producing it's like, I'm the producer editor and everything. Um, so yeah, I mean the future of podcasting, it's a great question. I think that, I think it'll always be relevant. Um, but I think that there are ways that we could maybe monetize, uh, podcasts for, I mean, and, and there are ways that, that podcasts, existing podcasts already do that. You know, they use, um, what's that, uh, there's like a subs- subscription service, uh, that you can use. I forget what it's called where like, uh, people can subscribe, uh, they you know, on as like a fan, a fan club almost, and they can pay, you know, like five, 10, 15, $20 a month to, to get exclusive content, um, from the podcast. And a lot of, a lot of podcasts are already doing that a lot. I mean, I listen to a lot of true crime and I know that, um, like crime junkies and, um, my favorite murder, they have their own like <laughs> fan club. <laughs> uh, so they, they have their own little fan clubs that people pay, you know, a, a membership fee to get exclusive behind the scenes content, to get extra episodes, things like that. So I think that there are totally ways that you could, you could, m- you know, monetize that as well. And actually rumor has it, that uh, Instagram is going to be looking into ways that you can have almost like an exclusive fan club just within the platform that it's like a membership fee, you pay a couple dollars a month or, you know, however much money a month to be part of this exclusive club that gets exclusive content from you on Instagram. So um, yeah, that's a rumor. I'm hoping that it's true because I think that would be a wonderful way for me to um, make a little extra money and maybe actually <laughs> be able to pay somebody to edit my podcast and stuff for me. Um, but yeah, um, I think there's totally a way that we can we could monetize it and make it a little bit more worth our while. Actually, get paid to do what we do. <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple of uh, questions. One of them is: uh, like, Do you think the wine industry cares enough about branding? Uh, because I would, from my point of view, and certainly based in the UK, I think it's pretty shit at it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I mean, but it's quite different in the states, I think, especially in, in California. So, yeah, I, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think they care about branding. Whether or not they're good at it is up for debate. Um, several of them are absolutely, yeah, shit at it. Um, even here in the United States, but they they do care about it, and they know they should care about it. Um, they just, it's the execution part of it that, that they struggle with, um, which is where, you know, people like me and, and brand strategists come into play and actually help, you know, kind of take these chaotic ideas, you know, again, because yes, winemakers are very, um, practical people, but they're also very creative people. And sometimes people who are both, uh, creative and practical have so many ideas floating around. I'm like this way as well so many ideas floating around in their head that they don't know which one to grab onto and actually make something of. And so a brand strategist um, can actually take those ideas and like 
put them into a plan and, and make it work for them. So, um, yes, I think that, that wine wineries, wine brands do care. They just don't know how to implement what they care about. Right. Um, and so I think one of the best investments a brand could make is by working with someone who like a brand strategist, somebody who can help put those, all these wonderful creative ideas that they have into a strategic plan, um, you know, a, a system of operation, an SOP to, to take that and move that into the public rather than just in their heads, right? Well, I'm conscious of time, so um, we'll end on the question I always like to end on. Um, what do you see as the real causes of optimism for the for the wine trade? The main cause of optimism for the wine trade. Or anything even you're particularly optimistic about. Yeah. I mean, I'm really, I think after last year, we had, a, you know, a year of reckoning um, as it applies to, you know, racial disparities, especially in the wine industry and, and, um, diversity, you know, with, with, um, the black lives matter movement with the me too movement. Um, I think that the wine industry is really experiencing a big shift in, in how it originally operated. It's no longer just like a white boys club, right. It is turning into this more diverse space. And so I'm very optimistic. There's a lot of work to be done a lot of work to be done, but I'm very optimistic that we are moving in the right direction, that we are starting to really, um, incorporate diversity, equity, inclusion into the fabric of the companies that we work for and, and, um, within the wine industry as a whole. So that is, I would say something that I'm extremely optimistic about is the continued, um, movement of of inviting more diverse people into this wonderful industry because they have so much to offer um and and can really make us a a, a really wonderful industry um yeah so i would say that's the big thing that i'm, I'm optimistic about <laughs> yeah i think so too i think so too yeah cool well listen thank you so much for your time that's been amazing Thank you so much. I really appreciate you bringing me on today. It was lots of really good qu questions. <laughs> uh, well, they're all exam questions. I can't take credit for that, but yeah, it's a fairly easy <laughs> gig from my point of view. But no, thanks once again. Uh, yeah, and everyone, um, I'll put a link in to, to subscribe for Craft and Cluster because I think it's I think it's a great thing to listen. Thank you so much. Cool. No, thank you so much for that. That was amazing. <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, I had so much fun. <laughs>